1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm just going to read through the passage that we've been focusing on for the past few weeks. But we're not really going to stay there very long tonight again. Uh, we basically have gone through most of the various gifts that, that are described here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. But we're going to finish off with the last two of those gifts and um, and perhaps focus more on one than the other. But let's see where the Lord takes us tonight with regard to these gifts that are mentioned. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll read from verse 7 where Paul says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Keep that in mind. These are not for our own edification in the church. But there is a distinction that is made with regard to one of the gifts. But Paul says they all are for the profit for every one in the body. No one person benefits from any of the gifts individually, exclusively. And so Paul is emphasizing that the gifts are there so that everybody in the church can be uh, recipients of the blessings that come from the manifestation and the distribution of those gifts. However they are manifest, however they are distributed, that's up to the Spirit of God. And he tells us in verse 8, To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So Paul is emphasizing again, these are gifts of the Spirit. And in our studies in the previous times together, we've talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit um, and one of the things that I had emphasized was with regard to where is the Holy Spirit? How does he manifest himself in the life of a believer? There are three words in the Greek language that we focused on with regard to the position of the Holy Spirit with regard to the believer. Jesus had said in uh, chapter 15 and 16, that he was going to send the Comforter. And the Comforter was identified by Jesus as the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he will be with you, or he is with you rather, and he will be in you. In John's Gospel, chapter 21, I believe, Jesus is raised from the dead and he's met with his disciples on that Sunday morning after the resurrection. And he tells them that they are to receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, at that time, with just ten of the eleven who were remaining of the apostles, he breathed on them, John tells us, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's implied in that passage that the disciples who were present in the room and that first encounter with Jesus were born again. They received the Holy Spirit. They were the first of those to be born again, obviously, and they were in the upper room with the other 100 and 
10 individuals, a total of 120 souls in the upper room. And it can be assumed, I believe, that those 120 souls were all born again because of the events that had taken place between the time that Jesus first appeared to them and the time that they were seating in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. Now, that waiting was the instruction of Jesus as he gave to them in Acts chapter 1 when he told them to wait in Jerusalem until the promise that you have been given is manifest. The Holy Spirit was to be the promise that would be revealed to them. They didn't know exactly what to expect, but they knew that at that moment they already knew that the Holy Spirit was with them and had always been with them, but there was a new condition of the Spirit's presence in their lives in that they now had the Spirit in them. Now, Paul gives us that very, very same confidence with regard to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is and has always been with us. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts men of sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's present in the world ministering to the lost as well as ministering to those who are saved. For those who are saved, he is dwelling in us. And that indwelling of the Holy Spirit begins at the time of conversion. Paul focuses that truth in this statement that he makes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, then you are a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul also alluded to that when he said in uh, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no one can call Jesus accursed except if he doesn't have the Spirit. And no one can speak that Jesus is Lord unless he has the Holy Spirit. So he's saying there that you've got to have the Holy Spirit if you are to be acknowledging that Christ is your Lord and Savior. The Spirit of God dwells in every believer. At the moment of conversion, the Spirit comes into us. That's when we are quickened, made alive, in other words, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Another word that is commonly used is we've been regenerated. Jesus said, Jesus said you must be born again. And when Nicodemus asked him what he meant by that, he said that it was a spiritual thing. You must be born of the Spirit. And so the Spirit takes residence in the believer. We, have, we are told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. But also in the book of Acts, we find that Jesus comes up, uh, rather the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer. And Although it's maybe difficult to grasp, or what is it? Is he with us? Is he in us? Is he upon us? And the answer is yes to all of those questions. He's everywhere at once. He's not limited to a space or a time or physical existence like we know. It's because he's spirit. So he can indeed be with us. He can indeed be in us and come upon us all at the same time, but there is a distinction made in those three conditions that are given to us in the book of Acts. And so I want to emphasize tonight 
that this gift of tongues that Paul is talking about is a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer who already has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. Another way of looking at it in, in the scriptures, it's referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in other places, it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. But in every one of those cases that we're going to be looking at tonight, the presence of the Holy Spirit, or at least the apparent presence of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer has to do with a gift that is given. And we're going to look at that gift as we move forward from this point. Keep in mind that Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to believers as he chooses to. So in the church, there are gifts that he has given to each believer. And he allows those gifts to be manifest within the church ministry as the people of God come together because we are the church. And when we do come together, even in a meeting like this where we're not actually physically together, we are with one another in the sense that we can see most of the time our faces or talk to us each other through this miracle of Internet connections. But the Holy Spirit can indeed move as he chooses if we allow him. Paul will tell us elsewhere that the spirit of prophecy is subject to the prophet. In other words, we control, but the spirit gives the gifts. So there's a twofold emphasis here. The spirit issues the ability to do miraculous things, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy, the ability to have words of knowledge and words of wisdom, but we are responsible to stir up the gift that is in us. Paul tells Timothy that in two places, in First and in Second Timothy, that it was his responsibility to indeed stir up the gift that was in him, that was given to him by the laying on of his hands, sometime earlier on in Timothy's experience as a believer. Also, Paul tells us in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians that we are not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's our responsibility in that sense then to allow the Spirit to move in our lives. And when we don't, then perhaps we're quenching the Spirit's power in us that he wants to manifest himself in a way that will glorify Jesus, but sometimes we're reluctant to allow the Spirit to move in our lives. And that's something that we need to be very careful about also. We want to let the Spirit be the Holy Spirit in us and do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and through us. So we're going to embark tonight on a study of the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, if we were a charismatic Pentecostal church, we would probably argue that if you do not speak in tongues, you're probably not born again. That is absolute heresy. That really does not make any sense at all scripturally. No one is here to tell anyone that you must speak in tongues in order to be saved. But what we are saying, what I am saying, is that it is a right thing for every believer to desire the gifts of the Spirit of God as he chooses to distribute them among the believers. 
And that would be all of the gifts, whatever the gifts might be, including tongues and interpretation. So is it available today? Well, we talked about that as well. Peter, in the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, told the people that were gathered there, and 3,000 souls were then saved, this gift that they were seeing, that they witnessed, is available to everyone who is called by God. That includes you and me. So let's turn to chapter 2 of the book of Acts and take a closer look at what exactly did take place in the first century church when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. Of course, the very first place to go is the very first instance of that, and that again is found in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. So turn there with me to chapter 2, book of Acts, and let's read from verse 7. Then they were all amazed, this is the people who had been gathered after they had seen a miraculous event that had taken place. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Lydia adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So what had taken place? Well, the book of Acts tells us in chapter 2 earlier that the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and they began to experience a phenomenon that is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit in most circles, and it is where the Spirit of God came down on the church, gathered together in the upper room, and like tongues of fire, the Spirit manifest himself upon their heads, and they began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, the Spirit was involved. He is responsible for the distribution of the gifts, and it is He who gave them the utterances. As it turned out, they were all speaking in foreign languages, languages that they could not have learned. And that's why we see this list of some 16 different nationalities and dialects that are presented here as evidence of the fact that the speakers of that day were speaking in languages that they did not learn and they were understood by people all around them. What were they doing? They were praising God. It says they were all amazed and perplexed because all of these things were done and they were speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God giving praise to God, giving glory to God. They weren't giving messages from God to the people. They were lifting their voice to God in adoration and praise for the marvelous works that he had done in and through them. That's what was going on. Now, there are 120 individuals here. There's only 16 languages or dialects mentioned. Is it likely that they only spoke in those 16 languages and dialects? I don't believe so. They must have spoken in many different languages and dialects, perhaps all of them worldly languages, 
But we do know from reading in another section of 1 Corinthians that speaking in tongues as it is given by the Holy Spirit as a gift can be languages that are not earthly, but angelic languages, possibly. Paul said it very clearly. He said, if I speak in languages of men or of angels, what does it profit if nobody understands? We'll get into that as part of the discussion that we're going to have with regard to the gift of interpretation. We're probably not going to get to that gift today. But I do want to make you, make you aware of the fact that in the church, the gift of tongues is only given to edify the body in the church. And it cannot edify the body in the church unless it's accompanied with the gift of interpretation. The two are connected in the church together. You have the gift of tongues, and if that is manifest in the church, there must be an interpretation. Now, we're, going to, we're not going to get into that this week, but we'll talk about that in subsequent studies. But keep that in mind. The gift of tongues and the gift of interpretations are connected. They're the only two gifts that have to be manifest at the same time in the ministry within the body of Christ. That having been said, Paul tells us, again in 1 Corinthians that we'll get to later, that he spoke in tongues more than them all. And the phrase more than them all implies that they all did have at least an awareness and perhaps the use of the gift of tongues. And in the church at Corinth, that was what the problem was. They were gathering together and everybody apparently that was speaking were speaking in an unknown tongue. And it was confusion. And Paul addressed that. And again, we'll get to that part later. But here again, in the book of Acts, let's get back to that particular portion of Scripture that we want to focus on today. Not specifically the gift of tongues as it's used in the church, but what is it that has taken place within the body of Christ as the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. Now we find already in chapter 2 that the gift of tongues fell on this 120 souls and they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Peter again says to them who are there, everyone can have this gift who is Christ's. Everyone, every believer. So I'm going to focus on that fact as we move forward in our study this morning. I'd like now then to turn to another portion of the book of Acts where the gift of tongues is again manifest. Take a look with me at chapter 8. Chapter 8 talks about the persecution that takes place in the church by Saul, the Pharisee, who later becomes Paul, the great apostle. But before he does become the apostle Paul, he is antagonistic toward the church, putting several of them, many of them, into prison, having letters with him uh, to take care of the problem by the, the leadership of the religious leaders of the day. He was responsible for great deal of persecution in Jerusalem in the very first days of the church. 
But what that did it was that it caused a dispersion of many of the Christians to other areas. They had stayed in Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus' command to his apostles was to teach the gospel everywhere to all nations. And they weren't going out at that point, but they were sort of forced into that by the persecution that came to them, primarily at the hand of this man named Saul. So then we found, since that time, a man named Philip, who is now in Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the place where the half-breeds lived. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't have much use for the Jews. They lived in the territory that was sandwiched between Judea in the southern part of what is now Israel and the area of the Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is located in the northern part of the nation of Israel. And Samaria was right smack in the middle between the two. But Philip has now gone to Samaria because of the persecution that had started by people like Saul. And he's preaching, proclaiming the word of God to the Samaritan people. And there's a great response in Samaria. And we find that in verse 9, as Philip is preaching this great news of the gospel and many signs and wonders are being done at the hand of Philip. Read it with me. He says in verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city of Samaria and accomplished, or rather astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is a great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Take note of the fact, Simon came to be a believer based upon what he was seeing, the signs and the miracles that were done by Philip. That's what drew Simon to coming to faith, apparently not true faith. And we'll see that as we move forward. But the man was a sorcerer. He was able to do all kinds of things that in his practice of those sorceries, he had convinced all of the people around him that he was a great man of God. And now he sees a true man of God coming on the scene, performing miracles and signs and wonders. And that has caused this man who was purportedly a sign and wonder kind of guy to feel like he needed to get together with Philip and join his troop. That's the implication that is given to us here. Now, as Philip has been ministering in Samaria, word gets down to Jerusalem that Samaria is coming to the Lord in great numbers and this caused a great deal of interest with regard to the leadership in Jerusalem. So verse 14 says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen, or rather he had not fallen upon any of them. Take note of the fact that the language is clear. 
they were believers. According to Paul, when you believe, according to Jesus, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. They had received the Holy Spirit. He's dwelling in them as new believers, but he had not yet fallen upon them as he had done at the first on the day of Pentecost. That's what Paul, or rather Luke, is telling us here. It says, They sent Peter and John to them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. And then in verse 17 it says, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The occasion that is being described here is vague. It doesn't tell us what happened. But when it says that they prayed that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they were anticipating that the Holy Spirit would come upon them as he had done on the day of Pentecost. And it tells us again in verse 17 that when they laid hands on them, they did receive the Holy Spirit. The assumption that can be made, should be made, is that they had some kind of outward expression of their having received the Holy Spirit. And I submit to you that it was probably tongues and prophecy, or tongues or prophecy, but at least some manifestation where the Spirit gave them some kind of evidence that this was taking place. Now, in verse 18, Simon is witness to all of this. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't impressed with a miracle or a sign and wonder like what Peter was giving. He was excited about what was taking place when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. And some manifestation of the Holy Spirit, though it's not specifically given here, was that which he desired. Now, he basically wanted to buy the privilege of being able to lay hands on people to give that gift of the Holy Spirit to everybody that he touches with his hands. Peter condemns him for that in no uncertain terms. Peter, at the end of uh, this session that we have with regard to Simon, says this in verse 24. Simon Peter answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, or rather Simon, the sorcerer, prayed, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. What Peter had said to him is this, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So, his having come to faith wasn't necessarily true faith. And that's, I guess, the question that none of us can truly answer until we get to heaven. But Peter says to Simon, if you don't change your ways, you're in big trouble. He wouldn't say that to a believer, I don't believe. But in any case, that story is given in the Gospel or the book of Acts so that we can see that in the very early stages of the ministry of the church, they've now moved outside of Jerusalem and into non-Jewish territory. Not Gentile. They don't consider the Samaritans to be Gentiles, but they consider them to be half-Jew breed, uh, mixed breed that they hated. And now the Spirit of God has been poured out and God is ministering to them and saving many of them in Samaria. That would have been completely foreign to the mind of any faithful Jew. The next thing we want to look at is 
the story of Saul of Tarsus. Remember, he was antagonistic toward the church. But God had a plan for this man. And we find that plan being worked out in a miraculous way in chapter 9, where we find Paul going to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And you're all, I think, familiar with this passage, where Jesus said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answered, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then Paul said, what would you have me to do, Lord? At that moment in time, I believe Paul became a believer in Jesus Christ. He identified himself in that vision that Paul had, and Paul was blinded by that encounter with Jesus. For three days, he could not see. And he instructs his friends who were with him, who did not see what was going on, to take him to Damascus, where he was to go to a particular individual that he was told to see so that he could receive his sight and be able to then respond to the call that God was putting on his life. So Paul arises and goes into Damascus, and he waits for a while, for three days, until somebody who was named by the Lord comes to him. And that man's name is Ananias. He's a faithful Christian servant of the Lord. And Ananias is told to go to the place where Paul was residing and to pray for him that he might receive his sight and receive the Spirit of God. Jesus told Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Although reluctantly, Ananias went. And when he saw Paul, it tells us in verse 17 of the book of Acts chapter 9, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember I had said being filled with and the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual is basically the same condition. They're describing the same event. Paul will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now coming upon Saul, and as a result of this Holy Spirit coming upon Saul, we find that something like scales fell from his eyes and he was able to see. And he received his sight and he rose and was baptized, baptized in water. He received the Holy Spirit before, by recognizing that Jesus Christ is his Lord, he became a believer. The Spirit dwelt in him. He had the Spirit of God come upon him as he filled him when Ananias prayed for him. And then he was baptized in water, not baptized in the Spirit, but baptized in water later after he had received the Spirit and the Spirit of God had come upon him. Now that's important because there are some who would argue for baptismal regeneration. That's not a valid doctrine. They say that you cannot be saved unless you are baptized. Paul was saved before he was baptized, and that's not the only case in the Word of God where that is true. So we reject that concept of baptismal regeneration, and we recognize that the Spirit of God doesn't do things exactly 
in the same way and in the same order. That's not at all the case. There are times when he baptizes at the moment of conversion, fills, comes in, and is with, all at the same time. There are other times when those events can be happening in different sequences, as we'll find out as we continue. But take note, these last two, there's no mention of speaking in tongues. However, with regard to Simon the sorcerer, something miraculous had taken place, something that he hadn't already seen with the miracles and signs and wonders that Philip had been doing. And it tells us again that the Spirit of God came upon those who believed. Therefore, the assumption is that it probably was the gift of tongues. In Paul's case, he didn't say here specifically that Paul received the gift of the Spirit in the ability to speak in other tongues. It doesn't say that he spoke in tongues. It doesn't say that he prophesied. But Paul, again, later, as we mentioned earlier, will say, I praise God that I speak in tongues more than you all. So he had the gift of the Spirit, which enabled him to speak in tongues at some time, probably here at his having received the filling of the Holy Spirit, as it's described here in chapter 9. Now, chapter 10 also has another account of an occasion where the Spirit of God comes upon believers. And that is in chapter 10, where Cornelius, a Gentile, is saved in all of his household because of his desire to know more about God. He lived in Caesarea. And Joppa was not too far away, and that happened to be the place where Peter was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. And in chapter 10, we see Peter receiving a vision from the Lord who, as a Jew, would never, ever enter into a Gentile's home, would never, ever have anything to do with a Gentile unless the Lord had made it so. Peter's vision was very simple. A bunch of animals in a sheet coming down, animals that were not clean animals, and the word of God coming to Peter and saying, Eat, Peter. Rise and kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never touched anything unclean. That happened three times, and on the third time, when Peter said, Not so, Lord, the Lord spoke to Peter and said, What I have cleansed, call thou not unclean. What God was saying to Peter was that this now is no longer a, an issue for the Jews. It never should have been, but it was. But as far as God was concerned, all humanity was cleansed and that there was no distinction between Gentile or Jew in this dispensation that was beginning to unfold. And Peter got the message. Three men came from Caesarea to seek out Peter and they wanted him to go with them back to Cornelius' house, and he did. And he went into Cornelius' house. I'm sure probably when he first stepped over that threshold of that doorway, he must have thought, I'm a Jew, but I have to do this because I've been commanded by the Lord. It must not have been easy for him. But he went into the house of Cornelius, and he's greeted by a whole multitude of people who were gathered there, waiting specifically for him to tell them about what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the subsequent pouring out of his Holy Spirit. They knew that Peter had words to share with them, and they were all ears. And so Peter 
gives the very first sermon to a Gentile audience. And as he's telling them about the wonderful things regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior and the giving up, giving of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden the whole place was filled with the Holy Spirit and they all spoke with tongues. It tells us that very clearly. Go now to verse 40 of chapter 10, where Peter is now finishing his sermon with these words, talking about Jesus, God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. He's giving a series of statements that have to do with salvation. He's leading them into a decision for Christ. And it's most interesting that in verse 44 we see these words. While Peter was still speaking, while he was still giving this altar call, while he was still giving this special message that was the first message to the Gentiles, he hadn't finished yet. But as far as the Holy Spirit was concerned, he'd said enough. He talked about the death, burial, and resurrection and the remission of sins. That's what they needed to hear. The Spirit seems to have now cut him off. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. The Jews were with Peter in that house, in that Gentile house. They were with him. They saw this. They experienced it. It must have been an amazing sight. Because as many as came with Peter that were their witnesses, they saw the gift of the Holy Spirit that had been poured out on the Gentiles also. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them also. I love the fact that Luke tells us that it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everything that the Holy Spirit does for us is a gift. And we should be recipients of His gift. Gladly receive what He wants to give. And again, in this case, as the Word of God is proclaimed, those who are attentive to what God is saying and their hearts are pricked and they now want to have Christ as their Lord and Savior and forgiveness of their sins, they now are born again at that moment and the Spirit also comes upon them and gives them this gift of the Spirit and it's identified in verse 46 for us, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So the gift is evidenced by the the ability to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Now again, the last place we want to go in this study tonight is in Acts chapter 19. Now the church has been growing. Paul has been on a couple of missionary journeys already. And he's now on his way back uh, from that second missionary journey. And he's heading from Corinth back through the upper regions of Achaia and across down into Asia Minor, down into then Ephesus on his way back to uh, Antioch. 
with Silas. They've had many miracles, signs and wonders that have followed them. But this is the only other mention of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon people in the book of Acts. It's found in chapter 19, where Paul has now arrived in Ephesus, and it tells us in verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? Now, it's an interesting question in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, he's not talking about necessarily either the coming upon of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain why in a moment. You see, these believers had been taught by Apollos. Now, Apollos was a very articulate and very, very strong uh, commentator of the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, I'd like to back up a little bit to his ministry in verse 24 of the previous chapter, chapter 18, to kind of pick up part of that story. It tells us, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, Apollos knew from John's ministry that the Scriptures had spoken of a Redeemer who was to come. He didn't have the complete story, but he did tell people that became his disciples all of what John had said. And he baptized them according to what John had spoken with regard to the baptism of repentance. They were baptized with John's baptism. They became believers in the ministry of John that pointed to Christ. They hadn't yet been truly born again. And when Paul comes to Ephesus... He meets up with some of these disciples and he recognizes there's something lacking there and he asks them, well, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? The reason that he would ask that, I believe, is that it was supposed to have been obvious that when they believed, they would indeed receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And their answer convinces Paul that they aren't truly born again yet. They're ready for that, but they only know what John had said. And the reason he comes to that conclusion is because they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was telling his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If they had been baptized according to that baptism, they would have known everything they needed to know with regard to the Holy Spirit in terms of His involvement in their salvation. They knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to Him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. We know nothing of that. And so He then proceeds to find out, well, why would that be? He said in verse 3, then into what were you baptized? They said to him, into John's baptism. So they give the explanation of their limited understanding. 
And now Paul knows that they aren't quite there yet. And he has this opportunity now to introduce them to the truth of God's Word in a complete story. And that will involve the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them and upon them. Listen up. He says in verse 4, Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now they are born again. Now they've been baptized in water, and it is a true baptism, not John's baptism, but a baptism that recognizes that they have believed in the salvation that is available to all who would come by faith. That's the only reason that they would be baptized in water if they have already become now born again. They have indeed received the Holy Spirit dwelling in them at that point. They're baptized sometime later. It doesn't tell us how much time has gone by, but they are baptized in water to confirm to all who are present that they have been born again believers in Jesus Christ. And then, it tells us in verse 6, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Again, this is not an orderly thing, necessarily. It is what they have been able to see throughout the book of Acts. And these are the things that are obvious to anyone who would read these words. The Holy Spirit dwells in us at the time of conversion, but He comes upon us for power and for the manifestation of the Spirit in filling us with His Spirit. And the evidence of that is oftentimes either prophecy and or speaking in tongues. There's no way that we can say matter-of-factly, nor should we ever, ever indicate that this has to happen. I don't want anyone here to think that I'm saying that you must be able to speak in tongues in order to be saved. The evidence in the scripture just doesn't point to that. But what I am saying is that it's a gift of the Spirit and it's available to all. And how do we receive it? Well, John 7, Jesus' own words, ask and the Father will give of the Holy Spirit. Ask. So, let's ask. Let's be willing to say, yes, Lord, I am willing to receive whatever it is that you want me to give or have. In the church, I want to be available to be used by the Holy Spirit, to minister in the Holy Spirit power to the body so that the body is edified and Jesus is glorified. I want those things to be done so that you, Lord, would be pleased with me, that I wouldn't be quenching the Spirit, but rather allowing the Spirit to move in me in the way that He chooses. And each one of us can pray that kind of a prayer. Are you willing? I hope so. We'll leave that now with this one final thought. Paul will continue to talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the next couple of chapters, and the majority of the focus will be upon the gifts of tongues and interpretation.
So although we didn't get into this discussion tonight of the interpretation gift, we will be looking at that the next time. But before we do into that study with regard to those two gifts, we're going to be reminded that we are a body in chapter 13. Read through that chapter and see what the Apostle Paul has to say with regard to us as believers and how that impacts the way that the Spirit will move among us. God bless you all. Grace and peace.